Section 2 of On Benefits. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Falada. On Benefits by Seneca. Translated by Aubrey Stewart. Book 1, Chapters 6 to 15. Chapter 6 what then is a benefit it is the art of doing a kindness which both bestows the pressure and gains it by bestowing it and which does its office by natural and spontaneous impulse it is not therefore the thing which is done or given but the spirit in which it is done or given that must be considered because a benefit exists not in that which is done or given but in the mind of the doer or giver how great the distinction between them is you may perceive from this that while a benefit is necessarily good yet that which is done or given is neither good nor bad the spirit in which they are given can exalt small things can glorify mean ones and can discredit great and precious ones the objects themselves which are sought after have a neutral nature neither good nor bad all depends upon the direction given them by the guiding spirit from which things receive their shape that which is paid or handed over is not the benefit itself just as the honour which we pay to the gods lies not in the victims themselves although they be fat and glittering with gold footnote alluding to the practice of gilding the horns of the victims but in the pure and holy feelings of the worshippers thus good men are religious though their offering be meal and their vessels of earthenware whilst bad men will not escape from their impiety though they pour the blood of many victims upon the altars chapter seven if benefits consisted of these things and not of the wish to benefit then the more things we received the greater the benefit would be but this is not true for sometimes we feel more gratitude to one who gives us trifles nobly who like virgil's poor old soldier holds himself as rich as kings if he has given us ever so little with a good will a man who forgets his own need when he sees mine who has not only a wish but a longing to help who thinks that he receives a benefit when he bestows one who gives as though he would receive no return receives a repayment as though he has originally given nothing and who watches for and seizes an opportunity of being useful on the other hand as i said before those gifts which are hardly wrung from the giver or which dropped unheeded from his hands claim no gratitude from us however great they may appear and may be we prize much more what comes from a willing hand than what comes from a full one this man has given me but little yet more he could not afford while what that one has given is much indeed but he hesitated 
He put it off. He grumbled when he gave it. He gave it haughtily, or he proclaimed it aloud, and did it to please others, not to please the person to whom he gave it. He offered it to his own pride, not to me. Chapter eight, as the pupils of Socrates, each in proportion to his means, gave him large presents, as Chinus, a poor pupil, said. I can find nothing to give you which is worthy of you. I feel my poverty in this respect alone. Therefore, I present you with the only thing I possess, myself. I pray that you may take this my present, such as it is, in good part, and may remember that the others, although they gave you much, yet left for themselves more than they gave. Socrates answered. Surely you have bestowed a great present upon me, unless perchance you set a small value upon yourself. I will accordingly take pains to restore you to yourself, a better man than when I received you. By this present, Aeschines outdid Alcibiades, whose mind was as great as his wealth, and all the splendor of the most wealthy youths of Athens. Chapter Nine. You see how the mind, even in the straitest circumstances, finds the means of generosity. Aeschines seems to me to have said, "Fortune, it is in vain that you have made me poor. In spite of this, I will find a worthy present for this man. Since I can give him nothing of yours, I will give him something of my own." Nor need you suppose that he held himself cheap; he made himself his own price by a stroke of genius. This youth discovered a means of presenting Socrates to himself. We must not consider how great presents are, but in what spirit they are given. A rich man is well spoken if he is clever enough to render himself easy of access to men of immoderate ambition. And although he intends to do nothing to help them, yet encourages their unconscionable hopes. But he is thought the worse off if he be sharp of tongue, sour in appearance, and displays his wealth in an invidious fashion. For men respect and yet loathe a fortunate man, and hate him for doing what, if they had the chance, they would do themselves. Men nowadays no longer secretly, but openly outrage the wives of others, and allow to others access to their own wives. A match is thought countrified, uncivilized, in bad style, and to be protested against by all matrons. If the husband should forbid his wife to appear in public in a litter and to be carried about exposed to the gaze of all observers. If a man has not made himself notorious by a liaison with some mistress, if he does not pay an annuity to someone else's wife, married women speak of him as a poor-spirited creature, a man given to low vice, a lover of servant girls. Soon adultery becomes the most respectable form of marriage, and widowhood and celibacy are commonly practiced. No one takes a wife unless he takes her away from someone else, 
Now men vie with one another in wasting what they have stolen and in collecting together what they have wasted with the keenest avarice. They become utterly reckless, scorn poverty in others, fear personal injury more than anything else, break the peace by their riots, and by violence and terror domineer over those who are weaker than themselves. No wonder that they plunder provinces and offer the seat of judgment for sale, knocking it down after an auction to the highest bidder, since it is the law of nations that you may sell what you have bought. Chapter 10 However, my enthusiasm has carried me further than I intended, the subject being an inviting one. Let me, then, end by pointing out that the disgrace of these crimes does not belong especially to our own time. Our ancestors before us have lamented, and our children after us will lament as we do, the ruin of morality, the prevalence of vice, and the gradual deterioration of mankind. Yet, these things are really stationary, only moved slightly to and fro, like the waves, which at one time a rising tide washes further over land, and at another an ebbing one restrains within a lower water mark. At one time the chief vice will be adultery, and licentiousness will exceed all bounds. At another time a rage for feasting will be in vogue, and men will waste their inheritance in the most shameful of all ways, by the kitchen. At another, excessive care for the body and the devotion to personal beauty which implies ugliness of mind. At another time, injudiciously granted liberty will show itself in wanton recklessness and defiance of authority. Sometimes there will be a reign of cruelty both in public and private, and the madness of civil wars will come upon us which destroy all that is holy and inviolable. Sometimes even drunkenness will be held in honor, and it will be a virtue to swallow most wine. Vices do not lie in wait for us in one place alone, but hover around us in changeful forms, sometimes even at variance one with another, so that in turn they win and lose the field. Yet we shall always be obliged to pronounce the same verdict upon ourselves, that we are and always were evil, and I unwillingly add that we always shall be. There always will be homicides, tyrants, thieves, adulterers, ravagers, sacrilegious, traitors. Worse than all these is the ungrateful man, except we consider that all these crimes flow from ingratitude, without which hardly any great wickedness has ever grown to full stature. Be sure that you guard against this as the greatest of crimes in yourself, but pardon it as the least of crimes in another, for all the injury which you suffer is this. You have lost the subject matter of a benefit, not the benefit itself, for you possess unimpaired the best part of it, in that you have given it. Though we ought to be careful to bestow our benefits by preference 
upon those who are likely to show us gratitude for them yet we must sometimes do what we have little hope will turn out well and bestow benefits upon those who we not only think will prove ungrateful but who we know have been so for instance if i should be able to save a man's children from a great danger with no risk to myself i should not hesitate to do so if a man be worthy i would defend him even with my blood and would share his perils if he be unworthy and yet by merely crying for help i can rescue him from robbers i would without reluctance raise the child which would save a fellow creature chapter eleven the next point to be defined is what kind of benefits are to be given and in what manner first let us give what is necessary next what is useful and then what is pleasant provided that they be lasting we must begin with what is necessary for those things which support life affect the mind very differently from those which adorn and improve it a man may be nice and hard to please in things which he can easily do without of which he can say take them back i do not want them i am satisfied with what i have sometimes we wish not only to return what we have received but even to throw it away of necessary things the first class consists of things without which we cannot live the second of things without which we ought not to live and the third of things without which we should not care to live the first class are to be saved from the hands of the enemy from the anger of tyrants from proscription and the various utter perils which beset human life by averting any one of these we shall earn gratitude proportionate to the greatness of the danger for when men think of the greatness of the misery from which they have been saved the terror which they have gone through enhances the value of our services yet we ought not to delay rescuing any one longer than we are obliged solely in order to make his fears add weight to our services next come those things without which we can indeed live but in such a manner that it would be better to die such as liberty chastity or a good conscience after these are what we have come to hold dear by connection and relationship and long use and custom such as our wives and children our household gods and so on to which the mind so firmly attaches itself that separation from them seems worse than death after these come useful things which form a very wide and varied class in which will be money not in excess but enough for living in a moderate style public office and for the ambitious due advancements to higher posts for nothing can be more useful to a man than to be placed in a position in which he can benefit himself all benefits beyond these are superfluous and are likely to spoil those who receive them in giving these we must be careful to make them acceptable by giving them at the appropriate time or by giving things which are not common 
but such as few people possess, or at any rate, few possess in our times. Or again, by giving things in such a manner that though not naturally valuable, they become so by the time and place at which they are given. We must reflect what present will produce the most pleasure, what will most frequently come under the notice of the possessor of it, so that whenever he is with it, he may be with us also. And in all cases, we must be careful not to send useless presents, such as hunting weapons to a woman or old man, or books to a rustic, or nets to catch wild animals to a quiet literary man. On the other hand, we ought to be careful, while we wish to send what will please, that we do not send what will insultingly remind our friends of their failings, as, for example, if we send wine to a hard drinker, or drugs to an invalid, or a present which contains an allusion to the shortcomings of the receiver becomes an outrage chapter twelve if we have a free choice as to what to give we should above all choose lasting presents in order that our gift may endure as long as possible for few are so grateful as to think of what they have received even when they do not see it even the ungrateful remember us by our gifts when they are always in their sight and do not allow themselves to be forgotten but constantly obtrude and stamps upon the mind the memory of the giver as we never ought to remind men of what we have given them we ought all the more to choose presents that will be permanent for the things themselves will prevent the remembrance of the giver from fading away i would more willingly give a present of plate than of coined money and would more willingly give statues than clothes or other things which are soon worn out few remain grateful after a present is gone many more remember their presents only while they make use of them if possible i should like my present not to be consumed let it remain in existence let it stick to my friend and share his life no one is so foolish as to need to be told not to send gladiators or wild beasts to one who has just given a public show or not to send summer clothing in winter time or winter clothing in summer common sense must guide our benefits we must consider the time and the place and the character of the receiver which are the weights in the scale which cause our gifts to be well or ill-received how far more acceptable a present is if we give a man what he has not than if we give him what he has plenty of if we give him what he has long been searching for in vain rather than what he sees everywhere let us make present of things which are rare and scarce rather than costly things which even a rich man will be glad of just as common fruits such as we tire of after a few days please us if they have ripened before the usual season people will also esteem things which no one else has given to them or which we have given to no one else chapter thirteen when the conquest of the east 
had flattered alexander of macedon into believing himself to be more than man the people of corinth sent an embassy to congratulate him and presented him with the franchise of their city when alexander smiled at this form of courtesy one of the ambassadors said we have never enrolled any stranger among our citizens except hercules and yourself alexander willingly accepted the proffered honor invited the ambassadors to his table and showed them utter courtesies he did not think of who offered the citizenship but to whom they had granted it and being altogether the slave of glory though he knew neither its true nature or its limits had followed in the footsteps of hercules and bacchus and had not even staged his march where they ceased so that he glanced aside from the givers of this honour to him with whom he shared it and fancied that the heaven to which his vanity aspired was indeed opening before him when he was made equal to hercules in what indeed did that frantic youth whose only merit was his lucky audacity resemble hercules hercules conquered nothing for himself he travelled throughout the world not coveting for himself but liberating the countries which he conquered an enemy to bad men a defender of the good a peacemaker both by sea and land whereas the otter was from his boyhood a brigand and desolator of nations a pest to his friends and enemies alike whose greatest joy was to be the terror of all mankind forgetting that men fear not only the fiercest but also the most cowardly animals because of their evil and venomous nature chapter fourteen let us now return to our subject he who bestows a benefit without discrimination gives what pleases no one no one considers himself to be under any obligation to the landlord of a tavern or to be the guest of any one with whom he dines in such company as to be able to say what civility has he shown to me no more than he has shown to that man whom he scarcely knows or to that otter who is both his personal enemy and a man of infamous character do you suppose that he wished to do me any honour not so he merely wished to indulge his own vice of profusion if you wish men to be grateful for anything give it but seldom no one can bear to receive what you give to all the world yet let no one gather from this that i wish to impose any bonds upon generosity let her go to what lengths she will so that she go a steady course not at random it is possible to bestow gifts in such a manner that each of those who receive them although he shares them with many others may yet feel himself to be distinguished from the common herd let each man have some peculiarity about his gift which make him consider himself more highly favoured than the rest he may say i received the same present that he did but i never asked for it i received the same present but mine was given me after a few days whereas he had earned it by long service others have the same present 
but it was not given to them with the same courtesy and gracious words with which it was given to me that man got it because he asked for it i did not ask that man received it as well as i but then he could easily return it one has great expectations from a rich man old and childless as he is whereas in giving the same present to me he really gave more because he gave it without the hope of receiving any return for it just as a courtesan divides her favours among many men so that no one of her friends is without some proof of her affection so let him who wishes his benefits to be prized consider how he may at the same time gratify many men and nevertheless give each one of them some especial mark of favour to distinguish him from the rest chapter fifteen i am no advocate of slackness in giving benefits the more and the greater they are the more praise they will bring to the giver yet let them be given with discretion for what is given carelessly and recklessly can please no one whoever therefore supposes that in giving this advice i wish to restrict benevolence and to confine it to narrower limits entirely mistakes the object of my warning what virtue do we admire more than benevolence which do we encourage more who ought to applaud it more than we stoics who preach the brotherhood of the human race what then is it since no impulse of the human mind can be approved of even though it springs from such a right feeling unless it be made into a virtue by discretion i forbid generosity to degenerate into extravagance it is indeed pleasant to receive a benefit with open arms when reason bestows it upon the worthy not when it is flung hither or thither thoughtlessly and at random this alone we care to display and claim as our own can you call anything a benefit if you feel ashamed to mention the person who gave it to you how far more grateful is a benefit how far more deeply does it impress itself upon the mind never to be forgotten when we rejoice to think not so much of what it is as from whom we have received it crippus passinus was wont to say that some men's advice was to be preferred to their presence some men's presence to their advice and he added as an example i would rather have received advice from augustus than a present i would rather receive a present from claudius than advice i however think that one ought not to wish for a benefit from any man whose judgment is worthless what then ought we not to receive what claudius gives we ought but we ought to regard it as obtained from fortune which may at any moment turn against us why do we separate this which naturally is connect that is not a benefit to which the best part of a benefit that it be bestowed with judgment is wanting a really great sum of money if it be given neither with discernment nor with goodwill is no more a benefit than if it remained hoarded there are however many things which we ought not to reject yet for which we cannot feel in debt
End of section 2 Recorded by Huala